And I am going to start reading to you in verse 9. We are starting today in verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by, doing, by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not, overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Let love be genuine, Paul says. Why? Because we know what the gospel is. God's love for us has been genuine. The entire letter that Paul has written to the Roman church has been about love, the love of God toward us, his mercy, what we do not deserve, his grace. What we have received because of his love, justification, that where we are sinners, God has taken our sin away, put it on Christ. Christ died on the cross to take away that sin, to be an atonement, to be a sacrifice for our sin. All the beginning of Romans is about God's love and how deep it is that God doesn't have sentimentality. He doesn't say, you know what, you guys are bad, but I, I, I sure do love you anyway. You've seen that with parents. Maybe you've had parents like that who've been that way to you and you've lived a certain way and you can tell they don't really love me, but they say it as if that'll cover over the fact that they don't act lovingly toward me. How many of you, when you were kids or maybe who are kids now and you feel that genuineness in your parents' love, even now as maybe some of your parents have grown much older, Maybe bitterness has been in your heart and in your life for a long time. Maybe it's with a spouse. Maybe it's with your child. Where has love in your life not been genuine? Isn't it the right call for us as God's love has been so genuine for us? And we go through this entire letter to the Roman church and we just see God's love lavished upon us. How many times it says we're undeserving, that we don't seek God, that we're hostile to God. And yet, what does God do? He loves with his people, Israel, in the Old Testament, over and over. They're, in, they're running from God in their sin, and then God loves them, and God brings them back. And then they, they rebel, and they build up idols. Instead of believing in God, worshiping God, they've worshipped this idol. And now God comes back, and he does these things. They seem like awful things, but things that they deserve bringing, you know, 
Babylon to bring destruction, then God does what? He, he says, I'm going to keep my promises. I love you and I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to restore you. Our kids have been reading in Exodus every day. And when you read in Exodus, you start to see the people of God cry out as they're in slavery in Egypt. And they're saying, you know, God, will you come? And then God says, yeah, I'm going to respond. And he responds and he sends Moses. This great man, right? Who's Moses? He's a killer. Who was exiled. Out of Egypt. He's an Israelite that was found in a river. He's raised in the palace. And then he goes and he grows and he ends up killing this Egyptian. And now he's out and then God says, guess what? You have the, you have the perfect resume to be the number one dude for God. Right? Why? Because it's not about Moses. Because he's the kind of guy that God uses. He doesn't have the rest. Listen, um, one of the worst things that we can do, and I know in the world when you're going to get a job, you have a resume, you have your stuff. They hire you because you have qualifications. People aren't stupid, right? They don't just hire anybody. And so you, you have those things. But this is what's great about God. The qualifications for being accepted and loved by God is you have to be a rotten, filthy sinner. You all qualify. Congratulations. Your resume has been accepted by God. Here's the difference. The difference is those of you who will listen on your resume are the ones who accepted. You understand what I'm saying? If you're not willing to list on your resume, I am a rotten, filthy sinner, totally undeserving of God's love. God goes, ding, 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 you qualify. Because it is those who are poor in spirit, not those who are rich. And those of you who are trying to hide your sins and who are trying to say, you know what, I'm really, I'm really a good person. How many times have I heard people say that in my life? How many times have I said that earlier in my life? I'm a good person. Uh, yeah, yeah, I've done this and that. And I mean, I, the, the list, you know, we start telling our kids as they're growing older of some of the sins of, of our past. You know, we became Christians when we were in college. And so when we look back at our college days, our kids are kind of like, oh, my goodness, what my parents, you know, what did they used to do? We're like, we're, we're ashamed of those sins, but we're not ashamed to tell you because we don't have to come to our kids with some type of perfect resume. Some of you are trying to tell your kids how righteous you are. Knock it off. Tell them what a, what a sinner you are and how great God is. And you'll be a better parent. Because you won't have to try to measure up. You won't have to try to act perfect. You won't have to defend yourself to your little defenseless kid. You have to try to defend yourself and act like you're right, even though you did something wrong to them. Let love be genuine, sincere, not syrupy sentimentalism. No hidden agendas. Let love be genuine, Paul says. That's the right response to knowing and believing the gospel, to being this living sacrifice, it says at the beginning of Romans 12 to being a member of this body so that we all, we all have these gifts, but together as the church, as his body, as the bride of Christ, we all have these gifts and we're to use them to serve one another, Paul says in the passage that we read just last week and that we've been reading on the slides each Sunday. As we are these kinds of people who now go, okay, we, just, we give our lives completely to him. We are a living sacrifice. We now, if we are that kind of person, we let love be genuine. 
how rotten is fake love? And you have to act like you're being loved, and you're fake back. And you have this kind of, we'll just get along with each other relationship. We'll just be okay. Paul's actually going to talk about what, what it means to live peaceably, and to live in harmony here in a second, but it all starts here. Stop being the person who loves fake. Love genuinely. And then he says, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. In, in other words, abhor means, you know, to, to hate. Um, there are good things and there are evil things in the world. And, and it's time to be decisive. Christians are not the ones who are going, where's the gray area? Where can we kind of flutter in the middle? We know evil, we know good, and we say what they are. It doesn't mean that we just brashly say what they are. We walk around as the, the judge of the world. But we're talking about genuine love, and then we're talking about the things that we feel and believe, that we are people of conviction, that we are people who understand evil, understand good, and we don't hesitate on what is evil and what is good. So we have this genuine love and, and we have this proper understanding of good and evil. And then Paul says, love one another with brotherly affection. And now it's really interesting. And I'll just kind of tell you at the outset, I want you to pay attention to this as we're working through this passage, how often Paul bounces back and forth between a kind of love and a kind of love specifically with God's people. And then how he talks about evil things. It happens over and over. Where you think he, it's like, it's almost like he can't stay on topic. He, he spreads it out and he kind of shows this wideness of God's love and therefore our love. So let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Keep those things, remember those things. Don't hesitate on, on knowing those things. And then he says, love one another with brotherly affection. This is now family terminology. How should you love each other? Well, we're friends and we are members of the same church or, you know, or we are both Christian people or we both, whatever. No, treat each other like brothers, treat each other like sisters, treat each other like family. Some of you don't treat your family very well. And so that's why in the church we have the kinds of actions that we have toward one another. We treat each other like the best, the ideal family. A brother and a sister should be one who can make a mistake and you forgive them and you accept them and you receive them. They can, they can be stubborn and you choose to love them anyway. In your earthly family, regardless of all the failures that you have seen in human relationships, we are now to live as this supernatural community where we have a kind of love, a kind of affection that displays family in a deeper and better way than you've ever experienced it. Because that's what genuine love is. And then he explains it a little bit better, a little, a little more clearly, not better, but more clearly when he says this, outdo one another in showing honor. 
one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, outdo one another in showing honor. Which means you look at the other person as what? As less than you, right? Because they are. They're they're stupid and sinful, and you're really, really good. No, we, we see the other person as somebody who deserves honor, not because we treat them as what they deserve, but because that's what genuine love does. Does God love us how we deserve? No. God loves us how we don't deserve. What we don't deserve is God's love and the depth of the kind. It's, it's, his love is not just sentimental. His love is not syrup. His love is not sweet. His love is deep. His love, his love causes him to wound himself in order to save us. That's love. God's love steps in front of the train to push you out of the way. And he takes the hit of the train himself. And so what kind of love do we have? What kind of affection do we have? It's like family. It's the family who always stands up for one another. It's the family who always says, this is, this is my brother, this is my sister, this is the one who I will always stand for. And we do that by outdoing one another and showing honor. In other words, we are in a friendly competition. We are in a friendly competition to outdo each other in, in treating each other well. You are to look at the people around you and find out how you can try to outdo them in honoring them. You know what's really hard? It's really hard to honor somebody who's not respectable, who, who doesn't treat you well. It's, it's hard to do, isn't it? And so it has to start with someone. Molly and I uh, always have this conversation in our marriage. We're always talking about giving each other grace because I can be a, a judgmental jerk and she can be absolutely perfect. Okay? <laughs> There's nothing else I can say. Um, <clears throat> In just saying those words, I made the effort to outdo her in showing honor. You see? The joke wasn't a joke. It was a way of saying, this is who she is, and I fail so often to do that. And we laugh because it's so unbalanced and so odd and, and, and kind of self-deprecating, but at the same time, it's easy for me to say, this is who she is and this is what she does wrong, because I see it. I'm with her all the time. I can, I can see all of her flaws and she sees all of mine. Much more than you would see them, because I'm just not with you as much. Right? And so, the goal is, and, and that's just in, in one relationship, but the goal in the church now is to look around and go, hey, guess what? We're together. It's Sunday morning. I'm with the church. How can, I, how can I run around here and try to honor everybody as much as I possibly can? How cool would that be? What kind of a gathering would that be is if you walk in the door and people are there and they are trying to, to give you praise, the right kind of praise, not God praise, but the right kind of, you know, this is who you are to me. This is how much you mean to me. 
This is what happened when you sent me that email last week that you didn't need to send and I wasn't fishing for. You just did it. When you gave me that phone call, when you, when you just kind of gave me that look after you knew that I had that bad week and you just gave me that look of I understand, that meant something to me. How can you outdo others? How can you be a part of this friendly competition? Not to gather for yourself the praise of others. You see, it's your position. Your position is a dispenser. God is the one who gives you all that love. And so you dispense from what God has given. If you wait for people to serve you enough in order to muster up enough to give back, you're simply now repaying. Now it's, it's law and deserving. But when God gives and it overflows, you are now just a dispenser. There, there is never a time when your lever isn't pulled that somebody hasn't hit the jackpot. Because that's what love is. It's genuine. It's brotherly. It's family. It's, it's deep. And so we are in this constant competition not to win at receiving, but to win at giving. What a great race that would be, wouldn't it? Where we're all pushing each other forward rather than looking behind us and laughing. Ha ha, I finally got a step on you. The way you get a step on someone is by stepping behind them and giving them a push. Isn't that weird? Um, book, one of the first books I remember buying as a Christian is a book called Descending into Greatness. I've brought it up from time to time. I'm not even sure that I would recommend it. I don't remember it well enough. I just remember the title, Descending into Greatness. Jesus constantly is giving these descriptions of who we are. And the description is, is that the, the way to be exalted is to be humbled. The way to build up the family of Christ is not for you to somehow get ahead so that you have importance and position and place. The way to get ahead is by outdoing each other in showing honor. Do not be slothful, Paul says, in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. In other words, you need to get the giddy-up back in your giddy-up. Don't slow down. Get aggressive. Get aggressive. How many of you feel aggressive today? When we think of the word aggressive, we either think of sports, right? Where it's like, uh, just yesterday we were playing basketball, I'm teaching Danny. I'm like, you need to be more aggressive. You need to stop looking at everybody around you as your friend. That ball is yours. Take it, you know? So you're, you're teaching them to be aggressive like that. And that's a part of the game. It's a part of how that's supposed to work. But the kind of aggression here is that we need to have this kind of zealousness, this fervency in spirit. We are serving the Lord is, is just, it's constantly there. You know what it's like when you get aggressive because you're angry? Those of you who struggle with anger, and some of you who don't, right? Maybe all of us, even the ones who don't, where there's that moment. How many of you hear a news story about somebody who's done something wrong to a child and you just get angry. You get so angry. You get so frustrated. You get so aggravated. It's like you want to do something. That moment where you just want to punch something. Some of you have punched things before, hopefully inanimate objects, right? <laughs> Drywall or something. Um, even then, that's kind of stupid. But you know what I'm saying? It, 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 we, we get that aggravation. But Paul says, 
genuine love, brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, and now be aggressive in spirit, fervent, not slothful, not lazy, but have this kind of zeal, have this passion. Where is your passion in serving the Lord? In being his servant, not giving something to him, but giving something because and through him, right? Now, now we're, we're, and let me put it this way. Serving the Lord is not like, okay, God, um, how can I put flowers around your feet to make you more beautiful? No, serving the Lord is serving others. What does Jesus say? If you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. So when you are serving others, you are serving the Lord. Some of, some of you have made your prayer life about, how, God, how do I serve you? And you're waiting, and you're waiting. And there's all these needs around you, and you're waiting for God to tell you how to serve him. Here's how you serve him. Find needs and meet them. And over-meet them. Overdo it. Overgive. Overserve. Outdo in your serving. Because of your zeal and fervency in spirit. How do you be fervent? When, when you're dull, when you're dead and you're dull and it's boring and you're just not, it's just, it's not, it's not clicking for you and you don't feel zealous, you don't feel passion. How do you, how do you get the giddy up back, right? How do you get that going again? Um, my boys and I, um, as we regularly do, um, flip on the TV and immediately look for something that's sports related. And uh, I think it was last week, there was a rodeo, right? Bull riding. And so this, this guy goes to ride the bull. And so I'm just telling the boys, this is, this is what happens. And so we start talking about spurs. Here's what you want to do. You want to get on a bull that has very pointy horns and is very angry and has been taught to be super aggressive and mean and want to hurt you. And then you want to kick it in the side with pointy metal things. Right? It sounds brilliant, doesn't it? But the best way to get the best score is to make that sucker as mad as possible. You've got to make him mad. You've you, you got to make him so that he's twisting and turning and so angry that in slow-mo, the snot is flying out of his... You know, you've seen that, right? The snot is just all over the place and the guy's kicking he's got one arm in the air and he's got his hand he's got this leather strap that he's wrapped around the bottom of the bull and then he not only wraps it around and holds on to it now he's wrapping it like a, he's like locking it through his hand and fingers so that even when he wants to let go what that tends to happen they can't yeah they can't get off they're on there and they're like oh no i've locked myself onto this thing and so now they're unconscious on the side of the bull right and they're going like this, and they wake up in the hospital two weeks later, and they're like, I love this sport, you know, I want to go do this again. Sometimes you need the spurs of God kicking into your side. And don't, don't take this too far. You're not a bull, and God's not a bull rider. You know what I'm saying? It's, don't, don't be weird about it. But I'm just talking about that, that one thing. And uh, uh, one of those things is being here on a Sunday, because when I preach, I just open up God's word and I go through it and God kicks me with it. And then I come and guess what I do? I kick you because that's what God has called me to do. And I don't kick you with, 
hey, Steve's perfect, and now here's how you be like Steve. I kick you by saying, this is God's standard, and we're all not there, we're all not right, but here's the love of God through Christ, and you need to trust in Christ, and then here's what he calls us to do together, and it's just this kick, and it hurts, doesn't it? And some of you get hurt and go, wounded, comfortable, make me comfortable, you know? It's like, oh, can't your preaching be more loving? Is God's word more loving? Is it more harsh? Is it more hard? What, what is God's? I just, I just open it up. Most of you who have been around for any length of time, you just know. We're just, right now, we're just going through Romans. I'm not making it up. I'm not going through and saying, you know, what do I feel like saying about this passage? We're sticking really tight to it. And so when you hear from me, Lord willing, you're hearing from God because we're staying so close to his word that we're letting it say what it says. So how do you how do you get the giddy up back? How do you get the zeal back? How do you not get slothful in it? Well, one of the ways that you can help others in that way is not by kicking them with your spurs. Stop being the Holy Spirit for people. There's a kind of exhortation that we are called to. We just saw it last week in Romans, right? To, to exhort others. And it says the, the, the word of God is good for correction, right? But there I would, I would dare to say that in most places I've been, in most churches I've been in, most sermons are your way to think of other people in your life who need to hear it. I regularly hear from you, boy, I really wish so-and-so was here, or this friend was here, or that person. And now there's, there's goodness to that. Some of you are you know, taking the message and getting it in an email and emailing it to your friends so they can hear it because you feel like it would be a blessing to them in whatever way. And I'm not saying that's not a wonderful thing. Of course it is. What I'm saying is be careful not to be the Holy Spirit for someone else. Because there's ways if, if people were coming at you the way you were coming at them, you would get, start getting defensive. You'd start getting scared. You'd start feeling wounded to the point where it's just not working. You know, you know what? You know how to wake people up? Here's how you wake them up. Outdo each other in showing honor. Love them genuinely. I was talking to someone, a friend recently, about um, another friend who's very difficult um, in certain situations, and this friend gave me just amazing advice and just said, you know, whenever I see this person, I just give them a hug and tell them how much I love them. <laughs> and I'm like, genius? <laughs> I I'm thinking, how can I bring correction? How can I say you're wrong? How can I say? And all, all those things are necessary because there were wrong things that were happening but we, in the conversation, I kept saying, I don't think they'll hear this. I don't think they'll listen. I, I think they'll just respond this way because when I have said things this way, they responded. And this person said, you know what? I just put my arm around him and say, I love you. I'm glad you're my friend. And it just was like, so simple. There are people who are in a state of, they won't listen. You know what you do? You abandon them and say, to hell with you. No, it's not what you say, is it? You love them deeply, genuinely, fully. You hug them well. So don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord and do it by outdoing one another and showing honor. Verse 12, rejoice in hope. Rejoice in hope. That's another way that you get that spur in you is not only can you, you know, work on each other. You, you want to be, be healthy? 
be in a church where everybody's out doing each other and showing honor, right? But also then rejoice in hope. In other words, you're looking past all the problems in this life. You're looking past all the broken relationships. And you're saying there is one relationship that I have that is with God. It is perfect because he makes it perfect and he loves me perfectly. And therefore, I rejoice in hope. I rejoice in that future. I rejoice in that end. I see the finality of this thing. And I, my, my faith and my hope is there. So how do I keep on keeping on? By not living inside of the cocoon of your circumstances. Jesus is there to make you see past that. To see beyond it. To see the future. Christians know and see the future better than anybody in this world. There's all kinds of people who are trying to determine this is what the future will be like. This is what's going to happen. People are writing books about their predictions and the trends of how things are working in the world. Um, You've even got groundhogs who are prognosticating, right, in a couple of weeks. Trying to tell us what's going to happen with winter. I can tell the groundhog right now, I think it's going to be an early summer, right? I think springs are coming because we haven't had much of a winter. We know, if we know Christ, we have an, an an unreasonable almost kind of confidence because all of our circumstances tell us that we should be worried and we should be angry and we should be frustrated and we should be aggravated with the world. And what God tells us is that we are rejoicing where? Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Everything's going wrong. What should I do? I should worry. I should be angry. Why? I should start questioning God. Why is this happening to me? No, you should say, I've got the future in mind. I have hope because I know that this isn't it. These bills and relationships and these issues and these whatever, this isn't it. It's that. That's way bigger than this. So I'm going to rejoice in hope. I'm going to be patient in tribulation when things are difficult, when there's trials and when things get so frustrating. I'm going to be patient because this isn't it. I'm going to get past it. It's going to be beyond this. Maybe I'll die. And then I'll be past this illness. Ah, Seriously. It is, it is a kind of amazing hope in that in history, there have been Christians who've been in prisons and who've been suffering so great, far more, more seriously than what we suffer. And they lived with a different kind of hope than we have. And yet they have so little earthly hope. That's why they live with so much heavenly hope. The reason you don't live with so much heavenly hope is because you have so much earthly hope. All your hope is in all these things. These are all the things. These are all the ways out. The more earthly hope you have, the more it's hard to see the heavenly hope. And sometimes God strips away your earthly hope so that you have nothing but Him. And so guess what you start to do? Pray. Because what else do you have? You should have been praying all along with that great hope. With that great patience, knowing that God will bring us through this, whether in life or whether in death or whether in whatever circumstance. Paul realizes the end in mind is when we rejoice in hope. We can be patient in tribulation and be constant in prayer. Even when there's nothing else that we can be constant in. Nothing else that we can be saved from. This is why God is so good. As bad as the world gets. 
as down as our circumstances can be, He is there at the end. If we will just place our faith in Him, we have all that we need. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. That's a part of outdoing one another, right? We not only outdo each other in showing honor, but now we're contributing to the needs of the saints. And, And then he pairs that together with showing hospitality. Now, hospitality is a word that is geared towards strangers, but that doesn't necessarily mean unbelieving strangers. It does sometimes mean unbelieving strangers, but it also means believing strangers. In that there's a time in the world in which we just don't have, you know, 3999 Motel 6s around. Or, you know, Green Acres bedbugs or whatever you got, you know. You can find it even cheaper. But, but there's, there was a time when to stay somewhere, to, to travel somewhere, you didn't have the resources. And so the world was much more dependent on the hospitality of strangers. We need to be hospitable, but in a, in a sense, we've built the world, at least in, in our country and in our area, in which we don't show the same kind of hospitality that was necessary, was really required in that world, because you would travel and you'd be so dependent. I'm going to get to a place and I'm going to have to hope somebody will put me up. I, I, that's, that's all I have. And so what do we need to do? We need to show that kind of hospitality. It, it doesn't just say... Do it if it's really necessary. This is what it says. Seek to show hospitality, which means pursue it. How many of you are in the pursuit of showing kindness and goodness to strangers? How many of you are in the pursuit of showing kindness and goodness and warmth and welcome to strangers? But it's not just that kind of picture. It, it starts with contribute to the needs of the saints. Remember we talked about in the offering, as, as we take care of each other, it, you don't just, your giving as a Christian does not end in saying, I'm going to give my 10% in the offering plate. Your giving as a Christian is you're constantly looking for more needs. You're looking for, for more needs to fill. If you say, well, I've, I've given my tithe to the church and therefore that's it. The rest of it's for me. You've completely missed the point. You are to be ready and prepared at all times, even sometimes remarkably, sacrificially, to contribute to the needs of the saints. And a thing that defines the church is need. If I was going to make a church, it'd be full of athletes and good-looking people and people who like to watch the same TV shows and have the same hobbies as me. If that's where I was going to build a church, I'd build it that way because that's how selfish I can be and you would probably do the same kind of thing. Some of you are building a church of people who all understand computers. You know, people think I understand computers. Mike Thompson, do I understand computers? No. He sends me long emails of what to do because I'm so dumb with my computer. You know, you can just do this. So dumb. I'm just, I just don't know, you know. I'm constantly being taught things by people who just are in that world, and I'm not in that world. And you know similar things. And it's, there are people out there who are creating hobby churches, and I'm, I think that's a problem. I, I want to reach bikers, but I don't want them to just have their own church so they don't have to learn how to interact with the rest of the world that doesn't wear leather. You, you know? The diversity of the body is important. It's important that we're different from one another. Um, I actually have a quote, and I only have it on my phone, so you're just going to, I'm not Twittering or anything right now. This is uh, 
from Christopher Ashe's commentary on this passage, he says this, The trouble with becoming a Christian is that I find myself in a society whose members I have not chosen and many of whom are very needy. By nature, I would prefer to be allowed into a club whose members are richer than me and where no calls be made on my money, time, or love. By grace, I am brought into a fellowship where I will be surrounded by needs. Only by grace will I be eager to meet those needs as I am able, as the early church did. You've been surrounded by a people filled with needs and you constantly feel pulled and the easy thing to do at a certain point when you're when when the request to you is constantly you need to to give more you need to serve more you need to help more you need to go with this person you need to talk with that guy you need to talk to about this so that you know that all these people need jobs all these people need and you start going there's how many needs do we have in comparison to how many people seem healthy and and everything's going well and you start to go isn't that just the world where even the people around you who seem the most well, if you really knew them, you start finding out all their needs. Isn't that right in the church that we know them? And that we can serve? Some of you have been and will be tempted because we're not a giant church and you guys know each other to eventually at some point go, this is burning me out. I can go to a really big church and blend in and not do anything. And I could show you a list of people I know who've done that exact thing even some very recently. I don't love them less. I just want to say Christianity is so much more. If we're not constantly surrounded by needs, we're not surrounded by the church. We're not being the church. The more we see needs, the more we say, this is, this is the way it ought to be. It was odd, but it's the way it ought to be. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Oh, this is the easy one. Let's just go past. Let's look at the next verse. No, no. Bless those who persecute you. Who hates you the most? Who talks behind your back? Who tells your neighbors things about you that are not true? Who's the one who runs over your trash cans? Who calls the police department because you haven't taken your trash can back up off of the curb at the right time before 7 p.m. on the following day? How many of you, you know, have the neighbor, if your grass gets, you know, an extra four days of growth, they're, they're calling the, uh, the local residential community leadership and saying they're not keeping up with the right stand? Or how many of you are calling? You have, you have people who want to do you harm. And so what you should do is build large hedges around your house and a big berm and fill it with red-colored wood chips so nobody can see and you can have peace from all the traffic. You drive along uh, the, the tollway and you see these 30-foot walls on the side because people want to have houses and that's, they can get them cheaper because of all the noise of the tollway, but then they build these fortresses in order to have some sense of privacy and, and, you know, a sense of place that doesn't include all that noise. And then, of course, it's by O'Hare, so what's the difference? You know, all the planes are flying over all day long. Bless those who persecute you. Find the people who are treating you the worst and treat them the best. Seek the flourishing of the people who are treating you as if they want you to die. That's what Paul says. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. 
This is a sign of a supernatural society. Is that you are not the ones who grind your teeth against your enemies. You bless them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. In other words, the writer of Ecclesiastes says there's a time for everything, right? There's a time for everything. And when you find a friend who's weeping, what do you do with them? You don't say, chin up and all that, governor. You know, you don't, uh, you don't just say, hey, hey, come on. It's just, it's a party. We're supposed to have fun. So you're dying, you know, so you're sad, so you've broken up, so your kid has been diagnosed with something. You don't do that. I was at a party recently. Um, holidays, Christmas party at a friend's house. And I, I saw a guy who's um, the dad of a kid that our kids have played baseball with. And I was like, hey, so good to see you. How are things? And he was like, oh. And I said, really, what, what's going on? I spent the rest of the night talking to a man whose son has a tumor, whose wife has probably cancer. And they were right in the middle of wondering and not knowing. And in the middle of the holidays, not being able to get an appointment, not being able to, you know. So he's like, this isn't a really happy holidays for uh, me and my family party stopped for me and he's he's on my list every two or three days to make sure I remember to pray I see him at the basketball games I look at him different than I look at all the rest of the parents I give him a pat on the shoulder in a different way than I give to everybody else I'm not punching him going hey good to see ya I'm weeping with those who weep, and then we rejoice with those who rejoice. There's a time to celebrate. Some of you are Debbie Downer, right? Doesn't matter what good is happening. You, you start talking about, you know, feline AIDS or something, right? It, you just find something to, to say that's wrong with the world in the middle of everything that's going Sometimes when you're down and somebody else has something good happen to them, celebrate, you know, celebrate and enjoy. That's a part of life is when you're down, sometimes you go and celebrate with somebody else when something good has happened. And when you're up and somebody else is down, you come down with them because then you're, you're there for the other person, not for yourself. How many times has somebody around me been like, this is what's going on with me. And I'm like, I sure am busy. Maybe if you made an appointment, right? Can you make an appointment so I can weep with you? Right now I'm kind of happy and I'm motivated. You don't want to wreck my mojo. I'm listening to a new album right now and it's peppy, <laughs> right? You know? And so there's a time for things and the focus that Paul has is not like, well, you know what? How you feel at the moment is how, that's the world. Okay, this is how I feel, so this is how I act. The, the new supernatural society is, this is how they act, and so therefore this is how I respond. To those who weep, I weep. To those who rejoice, who rejoice. And to those who persecute me, I don't return evil, I return good. Sometimes you go with 
and are with someone in their time. And sometimes when they're against you, now you're coming and you're blessing on top. And this is how he finishes out. It's really, this is where we go really fast. 16, live in harmony with one another. Harmony is a town near Celebration, Florida. I'm just kidding. Live in harmony with one another. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, which is not a New Jersey way of saying haughty. It is haughty. It is, it is, <laughs> you, you kind of watch Jersey Shore, right? No, no, you don't watch that. Um, <clears throat> Do, do not be haughty. Do not be, you know, arrogant or prideful or whatever, but associate with the lowly. Don't take the seat of honor. Take the seat in the back, right? Isn't that what James says? And then, and then they'll say, what are you sitting in the back for? Come sit up here. I know too many people who are going, my seat, my place. And I'm like that too. Live in harmony with one another. Associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Everybody I know is wise in their own sight. Dude. And, and I'm the same way. I just, I've, I've never met so many people who know everything. You guys, you, guys, you guys and everybody else out there, we all, we all know everything. How, how would it be if every day you woke up and I, for, for, let's say, two weeks and you just meditated on this? Never be wise in your own sight. I'm going to start living my life and the people I'm around, I'm going to not be wise in my own sight. How would that change you? What if you're not thinking too much of yourself, but you're associating with the lowly? What if you really did that? 17, repay no one evil for evil, bouncing off the idea before, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. I I specifically think that he's probably uh, talking about the church, you know, what is honorable in sight of, of God's people, but even in the world, right? It doesn't mean try to please everybody, but what is honorable. People know what honorable is. So don't repay evil for evil. What good does that do you? What, what good? What good does that do the world? Somebody's been bad to you, so you're going to be bad back? Congratulations, you made the world a worse place. And you made them more of an enemy. But if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. It's good, right? As far as it depends upon you. That's helpful because you're, if you just said live peaceably with all, no matter what they do, how hard is that? That's hard. It's not always possible, but as much as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. In other words, conflict should be in spite of us, not because of us. Conflict should be in spite of us, not because of us. You should be a worker of peace, a worker of shalom, a worker of flourishing in the lives of others. It doesn't mean that when we preach the gospel, when we stand for the truth, etc., that there's not going to be conflict. But we're never intending conflict. We're intending good. And so uh, there's a lot of people who could interpret this their own way and try to do it in a way that they're, oh, I mean it peaceably, even though I hate them so much. I really mean it peaceably. It just doesn't work that way. Verse 19, beloved, Never avenge yourselves. And Jerry, I'm sorry, but we're going to cut the last song because we're out of time. My bad. Yeah, it's fine. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. You are to be someone who is a punching bag. You're a doormat. Celebrate it. 
the world, your parents, everybody tells you, don't be a doormat, right? You don't let them push you around. You don't let them do whatever. A Christian is someone who understands that you are a doormat, right? That your, your value is not what you think it is, and your value is really Christ. And so whatever you can do, it's like the giving tree, right? You know the giving tree? I love that book. I've talked about it from time to time where you, you go through and the tree gives its branches and gives its trunk and gives everything and now all it's got left is the stump and, and this guy is now old and he's like, I don't have anything left to give you. And he's like, I sure am tired. The stump's like, well, just, you can have a seat. Sometimes that's all you've got left. Things, things are bad. You've been trudging through the storm. Have a seat. Wipe your feet on me. If you're not okay with that, you're not okay with being a Christian. You're okay with being an, an American or a, a, an arrogant person or a self-righteous person or a self-serving person or whatever you might want to use. If you want to be a Christian, this is what it looks like. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Verse 12, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Why? Because it's always that future view. It's always seeing the end. You're not living with the current stuff in mind, except how it affects the end. And guess what happens at the end? The end gets better once you've given more, not once you've gotten more. You see what I'm saying? The end is better once you've given more, not once you've gotten more. So even when somebody has been so bad to you that you should go and seek vengeance and it seems like the right thing to do, Paul says, don't avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay. In Deuteronomy, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, this is from Proverbs 25, if, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, there's two ways to see the burning coals. Because the idea here is simple. Somebody does something bad to you, now you're, this is just the, the, the explanation of bless and do not curse them, right? You want to bless those who persecute you. So now this is, the, this is the outworking. What do you do? Well, if your enemy is hungry, feed them. Which means don't have them go. They're not going to walk up to you and go rumble, rumble. I've got a rumble in my tummy. Somebody give me some food. You're just going to see them. And you're going to realize that they're in a bad situation. You're going to see somebody who hates your guts and you're going to notice something is wrong with their life. And you're going to see, oh my goodness, their relationship with their spouse is messed up. And you're going to wish poorly on them rather than bless them. But the Christian is the one who goes, there's a statement, I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. Which means there's a lot of things you would wish on your worst enemy. The Christians never wish anything but good on their worst enemy. They never wish anything but good on their worst enemy. That's what you do. So, if he's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, this doesn't mean the two categories are hunger and thirst. This means look at their lives and meet their needs. Help where they hurt. And he says, by so doing, you heap burning coals on his head. The way, the way I've always understood that is, you will make them go oh my goodness, I've been so awful to them and now this is what I've done so I need to change. I need to be different or I need to whatever, okay? That, that is one way to see it but I want to kind of just tweak it a little bit in that when you look at Old Testament imagery, when burning coals come, 
Sometimes they come as a matter of punishment. Now, it's not you punish. Okay, you're punishing your enemy by giving them food when they're hungry. It isn't, it's the way God works. For, for some of them, they will see what you do to bless them and they will be convicted. And, and Lord willing, they will come to Christ and God will work on their hearts, right? But for some of them, when you give, do something good for them, they will curse you all the more. Some of you have done something good for your enemies and all they've done has been, they've acted like you've had weird motives or they, you know, whatever else. And they'll continue to use that against you. But all that does is bring more judgment upon them. And it is God's weird way to us. Sometimes it, it, it reverses the way the world works. They, God is actually bringing more judgment upon them by you blessing them because they will react with sin rather than with repentance. But regardless, your job is the same. Look at your enemy's need, your worst enemy, and do them good. And he finishes this way. Do not, over, do not be overcome by evil, which is to give an evil response to evil. Evil now wins. Evil's in control. Once you respond with evil, now evil's in control. If God's in control, you respond differently. You overcome evil with good. You may not win. They'll still persecute you maybe. They might kill you. The point is, your job is the same. It is to serve. It is to give. It is to sacrifice. It is to love. And your love is to be genuine. Gen this is genuine love. You want to define love? It's not sentimentality. It's not the latest movie you watched. It's not just, oh, my hero. Right? Is that the right way to do it like this? Oh, my hero. I don't know. It looks more like a T-bowing or something. Um, Paul, to show that love, what genuine love looks like, does this. Just, just a quick overview of the whole thing. Not going to repeat it, but just overview of what, what he's saying. Notice the two directions he goes. Love be genuine. Let me talk about your enemy. Do you notice that? He talks about really two groups of people. Love be genuine in the church, your brother, right? Those who know Christ and your worst enemy. Those are the two categories. He doesn't say the average person out there who works hard and puts food on their family's table and, and has kids who are generally moral. He gives the extreme. And he says, if you understand genuine love, we've got to not only discuss it in terms of your brother and how you outdo each other in showing honor, but I need to also show you how does it go to the farthest extreme? What about the person who wants to do you the most harm? What do you do? When they have their bow drawn and their arrow pulled back on the string, you rip open your shirt to show them the target. Something like that. It's, it's something like that. That's where I think Paul's going. And, and, I, and I think it's, I know it's impossible without God doing it. If this is what genuine love is, you can't do it. And neither can I. Only God can. And he did through Christ. And he will through you if you live your life as a living sacrifice. Would you stand with me for closing prayer? If some of the youth and the families of youth would just kind of hang around for our meeting here in a moment. Um,
love to talk about what we're going to be doing. And uh, if you have any questions, that'll be a good time to do it. Anybody who's interested, go home and get a warm coat if you need to. Or, you know, if you don't want to go sledding, you just want to come hang out. If you want to go buy like 200 cheeseburgers and bring them so that I have something to eat, just find two. <laughs> Hot chocolate and coffee is yummy on a cold day. Um, or if you can't make it, we understand, you know, not everybody can make it or wants to see me fail, although I will fail. If you want to see something awesome, watch me go down a hill fast. It's going to be it's the agony of defeat, remember? Remember old sports stuff, the agony of defeat? The dude doing cartwheels because none of his joints are actually connected anymore? Um, we'll go have some fun together for those of us who want to join us. Um, love to have you. This is, uh, this is a tough word, and I don't want you to go away forgetting about it. I, I, I encourage you to meditate on it this week. What does love really look like? What would it look like in each of your relationships? Really think it through. Think of the people who you're closest to, whether it's family, people at work, people here in the church. What should love look like, and what does it look like? How much are you failing? Who do you need to walk up to and say, I have failed to love you well? Imagine the change that happens, not only in their hearts, but in your own, when you're willing to speak those words. Let's let love be genuine. Pray with me. Father, we, we cannot do this without you. We cannot do this unless you show us and remind us again every day of the great hope we have in Christ and the great love you have shown us in Christ. And so we pray, God, for a vision of that. We pray, God, that we will outserve, outlove, outdo each other. We pray, God, that we would um, give and give generously, not just to those who deserve it, but to those who don't. God, change us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you.